And Radio Derb is on the air. Greetings listeners from your historically genial host John Derbyshire, here to bring you some random commentary on the week's news. Last Sunday, September 18th, was the birthday of Samuel Johnson, the great 18th century man of letters and one of my literary heroes. In a blog post here at vdare.com, I urged readers to commemorate the event by reading Johnson's fine, pessimistic, long poem, The Vanity of Human Wishes, an annotated version of which can be found on my personal website. Those Elegant verses of Johnson's have been near the front of my mind ever since, so I hope you will excuse me starting off this week's podcast with reference to them. Here we go. Yes, the vanity of human wishes. Just ten lines into the poem, Speaking in a general way about human folly, Johnson gives us this couplet, quote, How rarely reason guides the stubborn choice, rules the bold hand, or prompts the suppliant voice. End quote. Those words came to mind the following morning when, in my New York Post, I read Mark Krikorian's excellent opinion piece headlined How the Gospel of Open Borders Took Over the Democratic Party. Well, how did it? Mark summarises the appalling facts about illegal aliens. By the end of Biden's first term, he tells us, millions, quite possibly five million foreigners, will have settled into our country in defiance of our laws, with no effort by the administration to stop them. What, asks Mark, what is the administration thinking? Among those of us opposing this, there is a tendency to assume that it is a reasoned policy. Note reasoned, not reasonable. We certainly don't think this open borders policy is reasonable. We do, however, think that it may be reasoned, that it may be the result of a carefully worked out, carefully reasoned, chain of thought on the part of our rulers. What we call the Great Replacement Theory is the kind of reasoning we mean. The ruling elites dislike much of the present US population, especially the white working and middle classes, the deplorables. Realising that they can't get rid of us, they have reasoned that the next best thing is to swamp us with poor foreigners, who will be more likely to vote for their socialist globalist schemes. Some others among us think that the elites just want to manipulate the congressional representation of the various states. Representation depends on each state's population, and so, by the way, does federal funding, and illegal aliens are counted in the census numbers for purposes of apportionment. The theory in either case is that the ruling elites are carrying out a reasoned, calculated plan to accomplish some end they desire. Well, Mark Krikorian pooh-poohs all that. No, he said, it's not reason guiding the stubborn choice. 
Elite brains, like all other human brains, do contain a module for working out reasoned plans. But that's not the module that's active in the case of open borders. What's active is a different part of the brain, the part concerned with morality and religion. Biden's people and congressional Democrats and the blue state liberals who support and elect them are not working methodically through some open borders master plan. They just think that enforcing immigration law would be wrong. Quote from Mark. Immigration enforcement is immoral, don't you see? End quote. A question that I ponder a lot is, is there something new here? The structure of the human brain can't have changed much in just a few decades. It has always contained that reasoning module, and it has always contained the moral-slash-religious module. Moral hysterias are not a new thing in human history. Think of the wars of religion 400 years ago. And Samuel Johnson's observation about reason, the one that I started from, was made 273 years ago. Yet it does seem to me, looking back across my own few decades of political awareness, it does seem that in the Western world the portion of national politics driven by careful, reasoned cost-benefit analysis has shrunk relative to the portion driven by moralistic frenzy, by the conviction that citizens who think like this and citizens who think like that are locked in an apocalyptic war of good against evil. Perhaps our brains really have changed. Perhaps something in modern food additives is doing to us what the ergot fungus on mouldy bread did to medieval peasants. I really think someone should look into this. Closing quote from Mark. It would almost be better if the administration and its supporters were purely cynical political actors, deliberately importing voters. The real explanation is deeper, more disturbing, and less amenable to a political solution. End quote. I think Mark is on to something. I wouldn't altogether rule out great replacement theory as a factor in some quarters of the ruling class. I'll say more about that in the next segment. But yes, most of what's driving open borders is sheer, unreasoned moral enthusiasm. Before leaving the vanity of human wishes, though, let me just give you the next couplet following the one that I started with. Quote, How nations sink by darling schemes oppressed, when vengeance listens to the fool's request. And yes, there is definitely vengeance in the mix there somewhere. It's vengeance at one remove, though. Like, I hate these people for what they've done to those people, but I'll get even with them. I mentioned in the previous segment that our ruling elites dislike a great mass of their fellow citizens, especially the white working and middle classes, the bitter clingers, the deplorables. If you want a poster child for that dislike, you couldn't do better than Brett Stevens. 
To say that Brett Stevens dislikes a great mass of his fellow citizens is not based on anything subjective or impressionistic. The guy has said so in cold print. Here he was in a New York Times op-ed five years ago. Title of the piece? Only mass deportation can save America. From that title you might think Mr. Stevens wants mass deportation of illegal aliens, which would put him firmly on our side. No. Listen. Quote from him. The United States has too many people who don't work hard, don't believe in God, don't contribute much to society, and don't appreciate the greatness of the American system. They need to return whence they came. I speak of Americans whose families have been in this country for a few generations. Complacent, entitled, and often shockingly ignorant on basic points of American law and history, they are the stagnant pool in which our national prospects risk drowning. End quote. You see, Brett Stevens wanted to deport American citizens. The deplorable ones. They commit too much crime. Their educational attainment is lacklustre. They're not pious, not entrepreneurial, and not fertile. Immigrants are better. There's no doubt that Brett Stevens' dislike of his fellow citizens returns an echo from the bosoms of the liberal elites who dominate our culture as incarnated in the Biden administration. Although not many of them would be so bold as to air their feelings in a New York Times op-ed. Stevens allowed, towards the end of his column, that the mass deportation of US citizens that he'd been arguing for wasn't actually feasible. Quote, OK, so I'm jesting about deporting, in a quote, real Americans, end in a quote, en masse. Who would take them in, anyway? End quote. That op-ed was published in June of 2017. Has Brett Stevens had any second thoughts this past five years? Well, sort of. Thursday this week, here was Stevens again opining in the New York Times. This week's title, The Border Crisis Could Still Be Biden's Opportunity. The first three quarters of this piece would not be altogether out of place on vdare.com. Stevens deplores Ron DeSantis's ploy of shipping illegals to elite enclaves, but he allows that, quote, it succeeded politically, end quote, by showing up the Biden administration's ineptness. Then Stevens tosses and gores Kamala Harris and her declarations that the border is secure. He quotes the outrageous numbers of illegals being admitted. He scoffs at the administration's claims that disorder in Latin American countries explains the surging numbers of border jumpers. No, says Stevens. Those numbers result from the administration's annulling of Donald Trump's policies and openly welcoming an invasion. Quote, This is political malpractice on multiple levels. End quote. 
there was the turn of thought. Stevens isn't objecting to administration policy on any kind of national, economic or social cost-benefit analysis, nor, and for this relief much thanks, nor is he arguing against it on moral grounds. His objection is purely political. Quote, the crisis is an invitation to nativist demagogy. It was Trump's ticket to the White House, and it might be DeSantis's too. End quote. The administration's blithe, brazen open borders policy plays into the hands of those people. The deplorables. Yes, Stevens is telling the administration, immigration is indeed an unqualified good, but you're not managing it right. Quote, There's a solution to this. It requires us to be much more hard-headed at our borders, like by finishing the wall, so we can be more soft-hearted towards those trying to cross them. End quote. So, the guy who, five years ago, was calling for mass deportation of worthless American citizens and replacing them with smarter, more law-abiding, more entrepreneurial and fertile immigrants, is now calling on the administration to build the wall. Well, Scripture tells us that joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Still, I have a lurking feeling that if I were to try engaging with Brett Stevens on, say, birthright citizenship or chain migration or universal e-verify, or, worst of all, an immigration moratorium, he would stomp out of the room in disgust. How Nations Sink by Darling Schemes Oppressed Well, nowadays we don't use the word darling as an adjective, but in Johnson's time they did. Webster's Dictionary gives the meaning of the adjective as, quote, dearly beloved or delightfully pleasing. In that sense, there has been no more darling scheme in the Western world this past few decades than multiculturalism, also known as diversity. The notion that a stable, secure and prosperous society will be more stable, secure and prosperous if it imports lots of people from very different societies. Diversity is our strength. And yes, Johnson was right. This darling scheme is indeed causing nations to sink. We've been watching some of the sinking in our news outlets this week. Case in point, Britain. This week's news from those sceptred isles began in grand style with the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. It was an impressive spectacle, a striking affirmation of national identity. Some uncouth and deplorable viewers remarked on social media that one or two carefully placed tokens aside, well nigh everyone involved and all the thousands of Britons who had waited patiently for hours to view the procession were white. I'm sure those people will soon have their social media accounts cancelled and quite right too. That was Monday's news from Britain. 
The news on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday had a different flavour. It was all about race riots in the city of Leicester. These aren't blacks rioting, as would be the assumption here in the USA. British blacks don't riot much. The last time they did, to my knowledge, was in 2005, and that wasn't rioting against whites, but against Pakistanis. No, this week's riots in Leicester were between Muslims and Hindus. We are told that it all started with a cricket match between India and Pakistan, played in Dubai on August 28th. India won. Hindus in Leicester celebrated. Muslims were vexed and we were off to the races, although it wasn't until last weekend that things got to the right level. Quote from a BBC report this Wednesday, quote, Footage shared by both Hindus and Muslims on social media, allegedly taken during the unrest in the past few weeks, shows groups from both sides, masked men banging on people's windows in Hindu majority areas and pulling down religious decorations, and others marching down predominantly Muslim-populated streets chanting Jai Shri Ram, a religious chant now commonly co-opted by far-right Hindu nationalist groups in India. End quote. The 2011 census, according to Wikipedia, showed Leicester as only 51% white, most of the rest being South Asian, from India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Religion breaks down as 19% Muslims, 15% Hindus. In last week's podcast, I quoted the novelist Evelyn Waugh concerning the Irish in America. Quote again. They have settled in their millions, bringing with them all their ancient grudges and the melancholy of the bogs. End quote. Yeah, that's what happens with mass immigration. That's what comes with diversity. Immigrants bring with them their ancient grudges. The Irish in America soon settled down. The Orange Riots of the early 1870s are now a distant memory. Still, that Evelyn Waugh quote was from 1949, so the ancient grudges were still alive at some level 80 years later. The Irish are white and Christian, though. More on them in a later segment. Will South Asian Muslims and South Asian Hindus eventually settle down amicably together in Britain? I suppose they might. It's a gamble, though, and in my opinion a foolish one that the Brits should never have taken. Diversity is not strength. Diversity is discord. How Nations Sink by Darling Schemes Oppressed Well, here's another nation listing dangerously, with seawater sloshing over the decks. In last week's podcast, I reported results from the September 11th general election in Sweden, noting particularly the success of the Sweden Democrats, a national conservative party taking a stand against mass immigration. I noted that the SD's share of the total vote was, quote, only around 20%. End quote. I further noted that that 
20-25% zone seems to be a ceiling for national conservative parties in Europe, like the AFD in Germany. The final vote count actually came out with the Sweden Democrats at 20.5% of the popular vote. That gives them the second biggest share of the vote. The biggest share went to the Social Democrats, who are approximately our own Democratic Party. They got 30.3%. The third biggest share went to the Moderate Party. That's actually their name, the Moderate Party. They're approximately our own GOP. They got 19.1%. There has been much wailing and gnashing of teeth at the Sweden Democrats having the audacity to place second in the popular vote. You can read a specimen of it in Tuesday's New York Times, where Swedish writer Elizabeth Asbrink, who is Jewish, goes full Hitler, Hitler, Hitler on them. Just what part the SD will play in Sweden's government is still not clear. Or not to me, at any rate. Jacob Christensen in today's Washington Post describes a sort of dance going on between the four parties who are more or less on the political right. Those four parties are the Sweden Democrats, of course, the Moderates, think GOP, the Liberals, that's a Libertarian Globalist Party, and the Christian Democrats, who are a tad more socially conservative than the Moderates. Those four parties between them got 50.4% of the popular vote, and they hold 176 seats in the Parliament just one more seat than is needed for a majority. Christensen tells us that the governing of Sweden will depend on how willing the Sweden Democrats are to cooperate with this other three parties. I guess we'll see. The governing of Sweden certainly needs some urgent attention. Violent crime is way out of control. Sweden now has the highest per capita number of deadly shootings of all European countries. 47 people have been shot dead so far this year. That's in a population of 10 million. Among shooting suspects, 85% are first- or second-generation immigrants. Nearly 23% of Swedish adults were born abroad, with Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan as major countries of origin. The immigrants have concentrated in ghettos, and they have organised themselves into criminal gangs that are constantly at war with each other. The word war is entirely appropriate. These immigrant gangs aren't just shooting at each other, they are also bombing each other. Tuesday night, powerful bombs exploded at apartment buildings in two different towns in southern Sweden. Sweden Democrats are the only party whose candidates speak openly about the immigrant nature of this violence. The other parties are all in denial. Given that, the 20% ceiling in the popular vote that the Sweden Democrats just barely broke through is surprising. Not surprisingly high, it's surprisingly low. Let's have a little musical interlude. Here are the Irish Rovers.
that begins to mix up that you have never seen. Me father, he was orange, and me mother, she was green. Oh, my father was an Ulster man, from Brunson was he. My mother was a Catholic girl from County Cork with she. They were married in two churches, lived happily enough. Until the day that I was born, and things are rather tough. Oh, it's the biggest mix-up that you have ever seen. My father, he was orange, and my mother, she was green. In case you didn't get the gist of that, the late Jimmy Ferguson there was singing an old Northern Ireland ditty. My father, he was orange, and my mother, she was green. The orange and the green there refer to the signature colours of Northern Ireland's two religious tribes. The Protestants orange, the Catholics green. When Irish independence from Britain was being negotiated a hundred years ago, the six counties of the north voted to stay in union with the British Crown. Why those six counties? Because they were majority Protestant, while Ireland's other 26 counties were majority Catholic. Some people observed at the time and many have observed since, that the Catholics of those six counties had a higher birth rate than the Protestants. At some future point, these people said, the Catholics would win the demographic race. What would happen then? Well, apparently that point has been reached. We've been seeing numbers from the 2021 census. Quote from the BBC report yesterday, quote, The proportion of the resident population which is either Catholic or brought up Catholic is 45.7% compared to 43.48% Protestant, end quote. In the previous census, in 2011, the corresponding figures were 45.1% and 48.4%. On a straightforward linear interpolation, if I got the math right, that means that the actual crossover point, when Catholic and Protestant percentages were precisely equal, would have been 36 minutes and 3.8592 seconds after 8am on the morning of May 24th, 2017. Does anyone actually care at this point? The old, rigidly Catholic Republic of Ireland is long gone. Last time I looked, they had a Prime Minister who was a homosexual with Indian parents from Bombay. Or maybe that was two different guys, I'm not sure. Anyway, Ireland now is, as I've been reporting for years, the heart of wokeness. National allegiance probably trumps religious affiliation nowadays. So how does that go? Here's another quote from the BBC report. Quote, In terms of national identity, 31.9% said they had a British-only identity, while 29.1% said Irish-only, and 19.8% said Northern Irish-only. End quote. I don't quite know what to make of that, but with British identity showing a 2.8 lead over Irish identity, we may have to wait until the next census before there's a strong case for a united Ireland. As the old saying goes, every time the Brits think they have found a solution to the Irish question, the Irish change the question. 
And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. The House Republican leadership has released a policy agenda, presumably in hopes that it will influence the November midterms in the GOP's favour. The agenda is called Commitment to America, and yes, it includes a section on immigration. So, what do Kevin McCarthy and his troops commit to? I downloaded the PDF to find out. Heading Secure the Border and Combat Illegal Immigration Under that heading are two bullet points. 1. Fully fund effective border enforcement strategies, infrastructure and advanced technology to prevent illegal crossings and trafficking by cartels. 2. End catch-and-release loopholes, require legal status to get a job, and eliminate welfare incentives. Okay. All right, I understand this is just an outline, but even so, this is thin stuff. Thin and vague. Advanced technology? Is that shorthand for systemic border surveillance through more effective use of personnel and technology such as unmanned aerial vehicles, ground-based sensors, satellites, radar coverage and cameras? We were promised all that in the Secure Fence Act of 2006, from which I lifted those words. You mean we're finally going to get it, 16 years later? <laughs> yeah, right. Does require legal status to get a job? Does that mean universal compulsory e-verify? If it does, why not say so? Eliminate welfare incentives? Well, as federal legislators, you can eliminate federal incentives. But can you stop those sanctuary cities spending their own money on the illegal aliens they so enthusiastically welcome? And the word wall is totally missing. It's not a very long word. Surely you could have made room for it somewhere. Any commitment on birthright citizenship? Chain migration? The diversity lottery? Anything at all about legal immigration? Item. The politicization of commerce proceeds apace, with PayPal in the lead. British Conservative activist Toby Young is proprietor of the Free Speech Union website, which defends victims of cancel culture, and also of the Daily Skeptic website, which covers all kinds of woke idiocy. Neither outlet posts anything that a sane person would find outrageous. Last week, PayPal closed both accounts, along with Toby's personal account. Sure, PayPal's a private company. They can decline to do business with Toby Young if they want to. That's freedom of association. It's no different from a baker refusing to bake a wedding cake for homosexuals, you see. There is also cartoonist Scott Adams who draws the Dilbert comic strip. Scott Adams has been dropped by Lee Enterprises, which owns nearly a hundred newspapers in North America. 
His strip used to appear in more than 70 of those newspapers. It's not actually clear that this one is political. Lee may be cutting down on the number of comic strips it runs for reasons of space or design. They're not telling us. Dilbert has been poking fun at political correctness, though. The strip recently introduced a black character who identifies as white. That makes the cancellation kind of suggestive. The end point on the road that these cancellations are taking us along is what political scientist Carl Wittfogel called a beggar's democracy. If you're a beggar, which means an insignificant person with no public platform, you have freedom of speech. You can say what you like within reasonable bounds of libel or incitement to violence. If you have any kind of platform, though, you must toe the party line. This is not modern totalitarianism. You're not scared to voice your opinions among family or friends. Outside those small circles, though, only one viewpoint is permitted. It's a beggar's democracy, and that's where we're headed. Item. And the war rumbles on. That war between the world's most corrupt white nation and the world's second most corrupt white nation. When the war started up back in February, I guessed that Russia would prevail, just based on the disparities in manpower and resources. That is still my guess, but it's taking the Russians longer than I thought. Vladimir Putin made a snarly, defiant little speech this week, channeling King Lear to tell the NATO countries that, if we don't keep our distance, he will do such things, what they are, yet he knows not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. His idea now seems to be to shift to total war, with no limits on targets, military or civilian. He's called up reserves, although so far it seems to be mainly the ethnic minority areas that he's drafting them from. Yakutia, Saha, Buryatia, Dagestan, Chechnya and so on. If the draft hits European Russia in a big way, things might get interesting. I still can't see Russia losing this war, but it'll get nastier before there's any kind of result. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening, and particular thanks to the many listeners who emailed in with comments, all kinds of comments from many points of view, on the passing of Britain's Queen Elizabeth. I watched some of Elizabeth's funeral on Monday, as I know many Radio Derb listeners did. Some lingering sentimental attachments aside, I am not a monarchist, and you didn't have to be one to find the show pretty darn impressive. The Brits still do that kind of thing superbly well. One oddity in the proceedings was the pipers playing the Skyboat song as the procession came to Windsor Castle. That song was a favourite of Elizabeth's, and that's why it was played. But it's an oddity nonetheless. What's odd about it is, it's a Jacobite song and the Jacobites gave the British monarchy a lot of trouble. You need a little Brit history here. Jacobite is the adjective from James. James being the common English form of the much older name Jacob. 
There's a long story in comparative phonetics behind the transformation of Jacob into James, but I'll leave you to look it up yourselves. So, who is the James that inspired Jacobite? Well, it was King James, fourth monarch of the Stuart dynasty, who ruled over the entire British Isles for four years in the late 1680s. James proved unsatisfactory to the Brits, or at any rate to the English, so they threw him out in what is called the Glorious Revolution, replacing him with his daughter Mary Stuart and her Dutch husband William. James tried for a comeback but he failed and he spent the rest of his life in exile, mostly in France. We know, however, we surely know, how hard it is for a rejected ruler to resist the hope of a comeback. James had a son, another James, and this James Jr. claimed that he was the rightful king of Britain. He had a lot of support in Britain, especially in Ireland and Scotland, and, of course, his supporters were called Jacobites. James Jr. himself was called the Old Pretender. Mary Stuart's sister Anne was the last monarch of the Stuart dynasty. Anne died in 1714, leaving no heir. So the Brits brought in a king from Germany related to the Stuarts through some collateral line, and that started up a new dynasty. The Jacobites saw their chance. They staged an uprising in Scotland in 1715, but the uprising flopped. So the German guy went on being king, and James Jr., the old pretender, lived out the rest of his days an exile in Europe like his dad. However, James Jr. had a son, name of Charles, and Charles kept the Jacobite flame alive. For that he is called the Young Pretender. So now Charles staged an uprising, again in Scotland, in 1745. It went along better than the 1715 flopperoo, but it eventually crashed and burned at the Battle of Culloden, way up in the highlands of northern Scotland. The English army under William, Duke of Cumberland, massacred the Jacobites. Charles got away. He was smuggled across Scotland to the Western Isles one of which is named Sky, S-K-Y-E, and that's what the song commemorates. He found a French ship at last and sailed off to exile, and that was the end of the Jacobites as any kind of serious challenge. The Battle of Culloden is still remembered with bitterness in the Scottish Highlands. The victorious English commander, William, Duke of Cumberland, knowing that Charles had got away, sent his troops to hunt for him. They hunted a bit too vigorously, committing a lot of atrocities against the local Scots. The story our schoolmasters told us was that the flower, which in England is called Sweet William, was named after the Duke. But that this same flower in Scotland is called the Stinking Billy. I don't know if that story is true, but it's a neat story. Anyway, there goes Bonnie Prince Charlie, the young pretender, escaping down the western islands. Whence the Sky Boat Song. Speed, Bonnie Boat, like a bird on the wing. Onward the sailors cry. 
Carry the lad that's born to be king Over the sea to sky. If his uprising had succeeded, The young pretender would have become Britain's King Charles III. It didn't, though, and the Brits have had to wait another 276 years for Charles III. Hey, those are the breaks. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. <laughs>